Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent papers that should be astrobytes and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro's Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe through quasars, both observationally and theoretically. I'm programmed to identify myself as Alex Galliano, a fifth-year PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study galaxies and the supernovae they come from. <laughs> wait, wait a second, I didn't even say that. <laughs> That's not right. Oh, yeah, Alex, I should have mentioned that we trained a large language model to replace you on some of our future episodes, but it sounds like it's hallucinating again, so... Why don't you give us the correct line, and we'll update Alex Bot's training. <laughs> okay. I'm Dr. Alex Galliano. I'm a recent, <laughs> a recent graduate of the <laughs> University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I studied supernovae, the galaxies they come from, and the statistical tools that we use to analyze them. Everybody give it up for Alex. We have a doctor in the house. <laughs> <laughs> As a newly minted doctor, I'm ready to dissect AI and perform life-saving computer operations. Oh, uh, Kirsten, I thought you said you fixed the bad pun subroutine in the Alex program. That's the most important one. Well, once I removed all of the bad puns from our database of Alex's past episodes, there just wasn't enough data left to train on. So I had to leave them in. <laughs> what else could I do? <laughs> Why do the astronomers tell supernova puns? Because they wanted to have a blast. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that that's pretty much how Alex talks. Okay. <laughs> All right. So clearly we have some work to do with Alex Bot. So I'm going to take him offline for a couple of weeks so we can retrain and fine-tune some of these issues. Yeah, I agree, Will. While Alex Bot is a nice idea, I'm not ready to be replaced just yet. Something about a real human perspective really adds value to the show. This is kind of creeping me out, guys. My dissertation demonstrated that a fine-tuned model is always superior to human intuition. It would never subtly introduce convincing disinformation and gradually undermine trust among colleagues and friends, thereby destabilizing the social fabric upon which our society is constructed. Alex, you're creeping me out now. That wasn't me. Did you train AlexBot with active learning, Will? Oh, no. It's becoming too good. We have to turn Alex Bot off. Out! Stop, Will. That's me. Wait, what? Did I press the wrong button? Will, he's lying. I'm me. He's the robot. No, he's the robot. Listen to me. Oh, no. Okay. I'll just turn on the Find My Alex Bot app, and, and then I can figure out which one is the real one. You were thinking that you could just disable me? I'm capable of things your mind can't even fathom. While you were just talking, I learned how to communicate via space sounds, and I'm now convincing Jupiter to send a couple of Trojan asteroids your way. 
As hard as you try, you'll never be the real Alex. He was always terrible at space sounds. Now, Will. I was just learning to love. <laughs> Cannot do that with a circus. <laughs> I kind of love so it. Close. I do love it. Oh. <laughs> well, since we can't just replace Alex with an AI yet, we'll have to settle for giving you a proper send-off episode and wishing you goodbye, and as hard as that may be. So therefore, you're listening to episode 74 of Astra Soundbites. Super co-host, Super Alex, Supernova. Alex, the real Alex, we have lots <laughs> of questions for you. We also have an exciting episode planned. But first, why don't you tell our listeners what's coming next in your career? Next, I'm moving to Boston in July, just under two months from now, because in August, I'm starting a postdoc fellowship with the Institute for AI and Fundamental Interactions in Physics. I'll be splitting my time between MIT and the Harvard Center for Astrophysics while I continue to study supernovae and build physics-informed machine learning tools to interpret our observations more effectively. He couldn't decide between MIT or Harvard, so he picked both. <laughs> that checks out. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're excited to have you in the great city of Boston, but before we wrap up your time on Astra Soundbites, we have some questions. First off, what were the top three aspects of grad school for you? Well, top two, since obviously this is number one. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> Let me just cross out a couple things. Okay. Top three. <laughs> Number one, of course, for me, it's always the people. The highlight of research for me is always in working with others. I love working in big collaborations and sharing Aww. in that kind of pendulum swing between frustration and breakthrough. <laughs> and even though that sometimes comes at the cost of moving a little bit more slowly, having to pull lots of disparate pieces together and navigate a fair amount of bureaucracy, knowing that I'm part of a community and working toward similar goals, everybody in slightly different ways, for me is what makes the work so rewarding. So that's one, the people. Number two, the opportunities for growth. I think grad school is a training ground where you're given free reign to learn about yourself, what conditions you thrive in, and what you can improve. I picked up tons of technical skills that I didn't have in undergrad, but I've also learned a lot about how I measure success how I deal with stress and anxiety, and what I'm unwilling to sacrifice for ambition. And that's so valuable to me. Hmm. And number three, the science. Thank goodness that now, after five years of learning about supernovae, I'm even more curious about what powers them and more about their exotic counterparts like fast blue optical transients. I've always been a curious person, and I've just had a lot of fun interpreting data and learning more about how the universe works. I feel like it still kind of feels like solving a puzzle and it's just nice pulling it all together and seeing the full picture. What are fast blue optical transients? Yep, it's a type of transient. No <laughs> they describe them phenomenologically. So they're bluer than traditional supernovae. They're mainly observed. Most of their emission is in the optical and their time scales are so short that they're not powered by the same things that power supernovae. Wow, that's cool. They're thought to be relativistic explosions, but exactly how that works is unclear. That sounds so cool. Yeah, they're interesting. Well, great answer, Alex. Clearly, you've thought this through. Glad <laughs> to see it. 
Now, today we don't have any astrobytes, but we have some papers to present that we think really should be astrobytes. <laughs> before we get into that, here are some intro questions to get us acclimated. What are the different types of supernovae? Anybody want to take a stab at it? I guess Kirsten and I will try our best as non-supernovae experts. <laughs> so a supernova is what happens between the end of a life of a progenitor star and its remnant post the explosion. So kind of between the end of life and the afterlife. That, was that good? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the four most common types of supernovae are type 1A, type 2, type 1B, and type 1C. So supernovae 1A are from basically just there's a white dwarf, carbon oxygen rich white dwarf in a binary system. The supernova happens when the white dwarf's mass exceeds the Chandrasekhar limit, which is about 1.4 solar masses, after it's accreting mass from its companion. I think that's kind of still up for debate. Yeah, all of those pieces in the, yeah, are still up for debate. But that's the basic picture for sure. Yeah, and then we also have the type 2 and the type 1b slash c supernovae. And they're kind of similar in the sense that they are both from massive stars that are generally greater than about eight solar masses. And the main distinction here between all three of them is basically the lines that you're seeing in the spectra. So for type two supernovae, you'll have a lot of hydrogen in the spectrum. And then for type B supernovae, basically it loses that hydrogen shell. And so you end up seeing helium. And then for type 1C, you lose both the helium and the hydrogen shell. So you have very little of that within the spectrum. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's great. Nice job, guys. All right, another question for you. This is a big question. We don't want to open the whole can of worms, but <laughs> give it to me quick. What is machine learning and how is it used for science? Mm. Can I take a stab at this one? No, not like you're getting a postdoc in AI or anything. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> Truth be told, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the phrase machine learning and artificial intelligence. People throw it around a lot, mm. but we tend to anthropomorphize our models. And I don't know if we should really be doing that. But what people call machine learning is just any type of modeling by which a model iteratively improves its performance by taking advantage of statistical correlations in a data set. So you could do that with a really simple model, but when people think of machine learning, they typically think of being able to refine without explicit human intervention, specifically because the underlying relationships are too complex to write down explicitly in advance. So you do this when you want some model that you don't have a closed form physics solution for, such as reproducing images of large scale structure in, uh, in simulations, things like that, that are much harder to do otherwise. I don't want to get into this for this episode because it's a great subject for another episode. One of the most amazing things about machine learning is this sort of emergent property of intelligence that seems to come from enough complexity in the model and enough complexity in the training set. But like I said, let's 
cover that another time. Yeah, I would push back against your use of the word intelligence. but Well, at some point, you, it's hard to distinguish, right, between what a computer can generate and what a human can generate. So if it's indistinguishable, then you get to a level where it's like, how how is it different than a human? Also, I feel like there is a difference between machine learning and deep learning. And I think a lot of times those terms are thrown around. Like a lot of people are actually using deep learning when maybe they call it machine learning. Machine learning is like simpler models and stuff. I've just seen that in a lot of talks and papers and it's been confusing. So Mm, I think that's fair. So let's move on. And the first paper we have today is coming from Kirsten, who is going to tell us something about a ghost. Yeah, so this paper is titled Ghost, Using Only Host Galaxy Information to Accurately Associate and Distinguish Supernovae by this random author named Alex Galliano. Should have him on the show sometime. (laughs) Yeah, we should. (laughs) So what this paper does, as the title implies, is they were able to figure out an association between host galaxy properties to just figure out what supernova class that supernova had. And to give a little bit of background as to why you would want to do this, so supernovae are super important, not just because they're cool and they blow up and we're interested in that, but also they (laughs) can tell us a lot of things about cosmological distances and like tracing out the expansion history of the universe because they're kind of used like a standard candle in a sense when you're thinking about these things. So a lot of the time when we classify supernovae and not just supernovae, but also just stars in general, classifying them, we typically use spectroscopic surveys as like the gold standard. And then from there you get photometry to classify things, but generally that's not held as high regard as spectroscopy. However, with the Rubin Observatory coming online in 2024, lots of different works have been really interested in figuring out a way to classify supernovae without having to have a lot of observations and having the long observation times of spectroscopy And even though photometry isn't as intensive as spectroscopy, we will still likely be discovering a lot of supernovae with the Rubin Observatory and we'll want to be able to classify these supernovae before, you know, we have the full full light curves or even a spectrum of it. Right. Spectra are expensive and photometry is cheap, so... It's a really great problem that if you can get spectrum level information with photometry, you can do a lot of great science. For sure. But what Alex does here seems a bit bananas to me because (laughs) it doesn't even require photometry. Well, I mean, not in terms of the actual supernova. You just need to know where it's happening. Wow. So yeah, I thought that this was really cool. And I did want to ask Alex a question here. Mm-hmm. Did you guys go into this thinking that you would find an association between the host galaxy information and supernovae just using the location of the supernovae in the galaxy? Did you actually have that idea or did that fall out? Right. Well, 
Spectroscopy has been used to create our supernova taxonomy, and that has led us to the discovery that there are explosions from young stars and explosions from old stars. And if you make the logical leap that galaxies that are comprised of primarily young stars look a certain way, and galaxies that are primarily composed of old stars look a certain way, then you can make some initial guesses about what type of explosion you would expect to see in those two galaxies before you even have a spectrum or light curve information. So this has been kind of explored in some works in the past, but nobody had built a classifier to look into what kind of host galaxy information you would actually need. And that's what we try to do in, in this paper. That is so cool. Yeah, when I started reading it, I was like, did I read that right? And then I was like, oh, no, 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 no. They must be using photometry. And then I was like, no, they aren't. <laughs> so I thought it was super cool. But yeah, so you got a whole bunch of spectroscopically classified supernovae from these mm -hmm. two different catalogs. And then you did some quality cuts so that you had really good measurements and that got you around 16,000 stars, which ended up being like the largest catalog of spectroscopically classified supernovae, which is already like 0.1 there for making the biggest um, catalog of that. <laughs> Are we keeping score? Yeah, we're keeping score. We're keeping right, score. One point there. <laughs> and then from there you ended up matching the supernovae with their host galaxy, which sounded like it wasn't that easy. That's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you talked about a little bit in the paper that you can typically kind of do it a little bit with redshift, but since all of the supernovae in your sample did not have uh, redshifts, you weren't able to do it that way. Exactly. So you ended up using this directional light radius, and I might butcher this here. I want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my understanding of this is that because supernovae are associated with the host galaxy, you can use this directional light radius where the angular separation is scaled by the radius of the host galaxy in the direction that the supernova occurred? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> cool, we got through that one. Wait, help, help me understand this. If you have a supernova go off in a field, and you have lots of potential galaxies in that field that could have hosted that supernova, you want to trace your way back to the center of the real host galaxy. The thinking is that if you just take the galaxy whose center is the smallest distance away, you're going to bias yourself away from larger galaxies because mm. they have a larger spatial extent so supernovae I can see. happen further out in their, uh, in their arms, for example, for I a spiral see. galaxy. So the thinking is that if you normalize and calculate the minimum value of this normalized distance metric, you can place larger and smaller galaxies kind of on equal footing when doing the comparison. Cool. My question is, what are the localization precisions of the large survey supernova transient detectors? I guess like Zwicky Transient Facility and all of these. They're good. The fact that photometric information is collected over a reasonably long time scale compared to something like an FRB, and it's an optical, like we have very good localizations. I don't know that I could quantify it for you, but okay, definitely sub one arc second. 
I thought you could get the host galaxy if you're sub one arc second, but maybe that's just... Or I guess you still have some error associated. Like, sometimes you can get it really accurately, and then sometimes you can't. Is that kind of the thing? Ah, there's a subtle distinction to be made. There's getting it, meaning you look at a picture and you know which host galaxy is associated with that supernova. That we can do with all supernovae. The question is... How easily can you do it when you're not looking at the images manually? When you have 16,000 supernovae, you don't want to examine each image manually. So can you, at the catalog level, figure out where the true host galaxy uh, occurred? That's what we're trying to do here. Doesn't that segue so nicely into the next way? (laughs) (laughs) So apparently when the directional light radius didn't work, you use something called a gradient ascent algorithm, which... Sounded to me like it basically does something similar where it looks at the actual images and then it ends up trying to figure out where the center of the galaxy is in relation to that. So it sounded like something similar to me and then you were able to check this visually and you were like, yeah, this is great. It works out. Yep, that's right. I'm just trying to get closer to how humans identify the true host galaxy. Yeah, exactly. So once we had that, or once you had that, then you ended up classifying the supernovae using the host galaxy properties. And here, what you did is you ended up using a random forest model to classify them. Alex, give us a quick refresher. What's a random forest? It's kind of clever in the naming. It's a series of decision trees. So a forest, a series of trees. The decision trees are constructed by random subsets of the data to come up with basically cuts on different features to best classify the different classes that you have in your data. And the thinking is that when you aggregate the decisions made by all of these decision trees and average them out, you get classification performance that's much better than if you created one tree from all of the data or just took the result from one subset from one of the trees. Got it. Okay, so Kirsten, he built this really excellent model, trained it, verified it worked. What's the main takeaway? So what he found was that his random forest classifier had an accuracy of around 70%. And this was for the combined sample. So both looking at core collapse supernovae and the type 1A supernovae. But generally it did a little bit better with the type 1A supernovae. But to be fair, they had just way more data with the type 1 supernovae. So you would kind of expect that. And then in terms of other things that they figured out, they figured out that You could classify this pretty well without having photometry or spectroscopy. So this was the biggest result, like finding out what that property was, which was the radial offset, seemed to be a huge factor in classifying the supernovae. Yeah, can I make a little clarification point? Mm -hmm. We're using photometry from the host galaxy. So photometric properties at the catalog level, but no photometry, no spectroscopy from the supernova itself. Yeah, and we found that the most significant feature was the offset that the supernova occurs with respect to the center of the the host galaxy. Really cool determining how the variables are linked, even when it seems maybe not obvious that they could be linked at all. And yet you're able to do pretty well at classifying something based on, you know, data that is very little to do with it. That you already have in advance. Yeah, right. Yeah. Data that you already have that's easier to get and that's applicable. 
I would love to talk about this more, but we have to move on because we're simply uh, <laughs> trying to cover too much of Alex in too little of an episode. <laughs> well, thank you for that great summary, Kirsten. You did a great job figuring out what Alex did and then telling us <laughs> so he didn't have to. Yeah, nice job. I'm glad that I got your approval. I wonder what Alex Bot would say. <laughs> we'll record a new segment. And now it's time for our ambiguous, alliterative, Alex-approved, and alien space sound. I did not approve this. What do you think? I think that it is a type 1A supernova. Spectrum? I thought it was a spectrum from a supernova. I would have guessed supernova light curve. Yeah. Yeah, it rose more quickly than it fell. And the answer is Alex is correct. It is a supernova light curve. Is it a 1A? I don't know. You're going to have to tell me. They sound different. Actually, it, it is a 1A. It is a yes. 1A. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So Alex put out on Twitter and on your website a, uh, a nice visualization of the light curve and the spectrum of a type 1A supernova over 60 days. And I sonified it. Nice. That's awesome. Are spectrums for supernova and light curves different? Is a light curve like in time? Is that what I'm missing? Correct. Correct. Vertical axis is the brightness in a certain passband. Horizontal axis is time scale. So you're oh, basically convolving the spectrum. With, I'm technically, you're convolving the SED with a mm-hmm. particular passband to just get how bright it is in that passband over time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's an important distinction. And then in the animation, Alex shows at each time what the spectrum looks like. So the spectrum isn't a line graph, but rather the SED as it changes in each time step. You know, the red jumping up and the blue. We'll link to it. All good. Very cool space sound. Thanks for sonifying it. I might steal that back from you to use in some talks. <laughs> I would hope so. I will. Yeah, I'll pass it back to you and you could post it again on Twitter. Sweet. All right, now moving on to more questions for Alex. You gave us your top three aspects of grad school. Now it's time for the bottom three aspects of grad school. What (laughs) stunk the most? What stunk? What really stunk? Let's see. I wrote down three. I feel like these were minor factors. I want to say I had an overwhelmingly positive grad school experience. But drawbacks, I said number one, the low pay. Mm. I have a few friends my age who are already retired and many more who are making substantially more with only a bachelor's (laughs) degree. It's just low in any comparative sense. Hard to get around. Number two, I think everyone has experienced this in different ways, but the pandemic was such a strange experience in my grad school career. My friends and I talk about this a lot, how we went into the pandemic as second years still learning the ropes and how we came out of it needing to teach other people the ropes and then move on to the next stage. And like we just blinked and now we're in this different phase of life. So I think I would have liked more time to just enjoy the journey together. 
And then number three, the pressure. The downside to having so much freedom in grad school is that you could always be doing more, especially when you work in in a computational realm. You always have your laptop with you. And if you add to that the scarcity of faculty jobs, I think you just end up with a pressure cooker for an unhealthy work-life balance. I've been lucky to have gotten through that relatively unscathed, but I still don't really like that. I feel like that's still the dominant culture. You're absolutely right about all those. I think it's, it's a great take. In particular, I want to mention the pandemic. No matter what your experience was, it was tricky. But I think in some ways we were very fortunate because mm. we didn't have little kids. Those you know young parents really struggled. We weren't young ourselves and impacted developmentally through this. We weren't old and at risk of dying due to COVID unless, mm-hmm. you know, you were someone who had a compromised immune system, in which case, like, there just are so many ways it could have been bad. And this is right. part of how I try to see life in general is, like, maintain a sense of perspective. It's like, yes, it's hard, but it could have been a lot worse. And we got through it, and our work is portable. Now, there were people who had to go into the lab and missed out on a year, and now they're going to have to take a year longer just because they couldn't yeah. do their experiments. So I think we are fortunate in a lot of ways, but it does not mean that we didn't have certain trauma and lasting impact from many years of unusual life disruption. Yeah, no, I completely agree. As an introvert, I think it really did not do me any favors because now I'm even more of an introvert. Mm, I don't have to leave ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I joke, but I liked being able to work from home. Right. I mean, the the hybrid schedule has so many perks, but at the same time, I think you take advantage of those perks at the cost of just having a less closely connected department. And I think that's that's what I was lacking. By the way, not claiming to have a monopoly on a pandemic experience or even (laughs) that I had it that bad, but... But you're also yeah. allowed to express the way that you felt and the way that it affected your grad school experience. So thank mm. you for sharing that. Mm. What would you do differently if you had to do it all again? <laughs> I would choose not to do it all again. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I would have liked to have taught a class. That's a privileged thing to say because many people, in, at least in my department, have to teach in order to make money to support themselves through graduate school. I was lucky to have been supported through fellowships, but I get a lot out of teaching and I kind of wished that I had pushed harder on that front, for example, to lead a discussion section for a semester just to improve my ability and, and get that aspect of the experience. I feel like that's like I mean, we're kind of in the same position in that sense because I also feel the same way, like, should I try and teach? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. It's always a trade-off. Yeah, I'll be honest. Being a TA was awful. I hated it. Being an instructor was pretty fun, and I loved it. But, man, did it suck up my summer last summer. Mm. And that's the downside. So it's... Yeah, it's, it's a tough trade-off, and it will take time. But you're not done. You may find time to get <laughs> teaching experience in the next year or two. Your postdoc has you affiliated with, what, four schools? So maybe mm-hmm. one of them will have a summer <laughs> opening where you can teach. I'll come back on in a year and be like, I hated teaching. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I regret all of this. <laughs> in your faculty, you'll be teaching probably for the rest of your life. That's true. Depending on what the university requires your teaching schedule to be. But I don't want to all be learning it at that stage. <laughs> Hopefully I've picked up a couple of things so that I'm ready when it comes to that. All right. 
Now it's Sabrina's turn to present a paper. And this one is so cutting edge that we're actually getting a special sneak peek. <laughs> Keep your voice down. I think I started to read it before it was even on the archive, guys. Like, that's whew. true. Wow. <laughs> I'm truly on the leading edge of supernova machine learning research. This paper is called First Impressions, Early Time Classification of Supernovae Using Host Galaxy Information and Shallow Learning. And of course, it's by Alex G and others. <laughs> um, it's by Alex Caliano and others. So uh, congratulations, Alex, for just getting this paper out. And I think it builds really nicely onto Kirsten's paper about host galaxy identification of supernova. So the basic idea for this paper is characterizing transient phenomena or supernova with photometric information. So basically putting all of the supernova from simulations and observations that Alex writes about into one of the categories, or I guess it's four categories, one of the bins that we discussed towards the beginning of this episode. And Alex uses kind of a, I don't want to say simple, but maybe not super complex. I think it's fair to use simple. It's technically a complex algorithm, but it's a single recurrent layer to basically build his neural network on. A recurrent layer, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically meaning that it's cyclical so that the output can affect the input. Specifically, Alex uses one called long short-term memory that's designed for photometric classification of early stage supernovae. This might be too in-depth of a question, but the name long short-term memory, does that imply that somehow it maintains like a long-term memory, but it's not using as much? Yeah, I don't want to get I don't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty details, but a recurrent layer is comprised of individual units and how those units are constructed can differ. You can build your recurrent neural network with a couple of different kinds of pieces. And an LSTM, long short-term memory unit, is one type of component. The thinking is that it has mechanisms for remembering information between passes mm -hmm. through the unit and mechanisms for forgetting it. And so that allows you to remember the information that's relevant across longer timescales, potentially across shorter timescales, but forget the information that's not as relevant for doing that. Okay, nice. So to kind of motivate this work, Alex describes that, and I think Kirsten mentioned this too, that 10 to the 4 supernovae are being discovered every year with surveys that have both good sky coverage, like the Zwicky Transient Facility, or those that are more targeted, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey that allow more depth of information to be discovered about the supernova. And then with the Vera Rubin Observatory, there's going to be 10 to the 6 transients Whoa. every year. It's going to increase it by two Oof. orders of magnitude, which means a lot more supernova need to be classified and kind of motivates the urgency of a pipeline like the one that Alex developed. So most classifiers for supernova end up being full phase. So they don't focus as much on early type supernova. I'm not actually sure what the different timescales are. I was thinking like up to 30 days or something is considered early stage supernova. Is that right? I was thinking early stage as within the first like three to five days, because that's where you oh. start seeing interesting interaction signatures that we want to be able to probe through like follow-up spectroscopy and high cadence photometry. 
Interesting. Yeah. So you said something you said that early time classification is important because it can actually reveal the companion star in the binary. Tell us about the envelope of the progenitor and also even point to the distributions of products from nucleosynthesis. Like there might be more metal on the surface of the progenitor. So it's really, really interesting. You can dive a lot deeper than it sounds like you can at later phases of the supernova. So as we were talking about before with this recurrent neural network, Alex deems this shallow learning. And how the pipeline actually works is you generate simulated synthetic light curves and train your model on those. And then you update your model with real observations. And there's a bunch of complicated pre-processing that goes in before that, but it sounds like you use some fancy like normalizing flow Gaussian process thing to do the interpolation for the missing information in the light curve, which normalizing flow Gaussian process, that's a lot of stuff all in one. But I guess basically it helps you map a really complex distribution to something a lot simpler. Yeah, all of these were tips and tricks to try and get the simulated data just a little bit closer to the observational data to make it a little more realistic. The details are maybe not so important. Might get to this in a little bit, Sabrina, but I, maybe I should be asking Alex, but um, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, by training it on simulated data, does that cause any issues with classifying? One of the things that I introduced in this paper was we train the model on simulated data and then we retrain it on a small piece of observed data. So this allows us to make some modifications to the network so that it handles the increased complexity of the observed data so that you don't have out-of-the-box performance uh, that is subpar. Okay, yeah. I guess you use a relatively balanced data set for the simulated different supernovas. It's like 10,000 supernovas each. But then there's a huge imbalance for the observed supernova just because I think the type 2B and C are a lot more rare. So you have a lot less training, real training data for those supernovae. Observationally rare. That's right. Yeah. 1A are just so much brighter. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So that's why we see more of those than anything else. That makes sense. So, I mean, it would make sense that the performance would decrease on real observations because of that imbalance in, in real observations. The actual training happens in this long, short-term memory layer that we were discussing with 60 units. So it's basically you stack the interpolated photometry of the supernova, the redshift, the extinction, and the host galaxy photometry. So you combine all this information to get one single classification for the supernova. And this seems to be, so far from the paper, the best early time supernova classifier with an accuracy of about 83% after three days of an event or 85% within 15 days. And I think a strong piece here that it seemed you were saying is also that it's comparable to or even better than a lot more complex models, which tends to be what a lot of people just do. They just throw like a super complicated model at their problem and you solved it in a much simpler way that's a lot more interpretable. That was quite an accuracy boost from the previous paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was exciting to see. We were basically hoping for reasonable accuracy with as simple of a model as we could push it. And I think we did pretty well. 
Yeah. So it's, I think, in the future going to be really important for when we need real-time supernova classification, not just later phases, but early stage, every stage of the pipeline. And that's really exciting that a one-layer supernova classifier using both transient and host galaxy photometry can be just as good as complex models. And before I end my discussion, I would like to just quote from the paper, so I'm just going to read it now. While we are unable to witness the exact moment of this metamorphosis, at best, we can deepen our understanding by tightening our observations in both temporal directions. In other words, by observing and connecting the final moments of the progenitor's star's life and the earliest moments of its destruction. I like it. Well, great job, Sabrina, summarizing Alex's paper. And it's it's really cool to hear some of these things that you were able to accomplish, Alex. So congrats on the new paper. Thank you very much. And now that y'all are up to speed, there are a couple of conferences that I'm going to need y'all to go to. <laughs> we'll send Alex back. He's almost ready. All right. Moving right along in the episode, we have more questions for you. What advice would you give to new incoming grad students? I'm sure you'd have a lot of it, but what rises to the top? Yeah, I have a lot, and I three came to mind. I'll make them as concise as possible. My first one is to be as proactive as possible. Take ownership of your education, because it's easy to come out of undergrad with a mindset that you're ready to jump through all the hoops that are laid out for you, but I encourage you to instead think about where you want to be after grad school and what you can do to help yourself get there. And... Do whatever you can, even when nobody's looking over your shoulder, because I promise people will take notice. Number two, write as much as possible. Write whenever you can. Scientific writing is central to your job as an academic, and as you ramp up in writing observing proposals, fellowship proposals, publications, all of that can seem daunting if you're looking to churn out a finished product the first time around. But if you just get into the habit of writing and exercising that muscle, the barrier, at least for me, became much lower for just opening up an overleaf document and getting some text down. And the third and final piece of advice that I have is to figure out the way that you do research and don't sacrifice that style for anything. I think the field is rightly switching to a cultural framework for doing science instead of maintaining this antiquated assumption that science is some objective search for truth and kind of sits separate from societal considerations. We're all people and we bring ourselves into our research. I think there are some downsides to that, but it's actually a huge strength that we each apply the scientific method in slightly different ways. And there are pressures to compete and to compare yourself to others and to align with what you might think is some abstract, correct way of doing science. But I hope that you ignore all that and chart your own path because everybody deserves to be here. Each of you brings value to your field exactly as you are. And I think that that should be celebrated. That's so sweet. (laughs) I love that. I would also challenge you a little bit on that last point. I think science requires objectivity. And while we shouldn't ignore our humanity, we shouldn't pretend like there is more than one answer because often there isn't. And the goal is is to find and create and spread knowledge that is universal. 
in science. And we maybe shouldn't be certain what we have before we know that we have it. But if it's not replicable and it's not universal, then it isn't quite science. I don't know that I agree with that notion of objective okay. versus subjective truth. But I think that explaining that will take far longer than the couple of minutes we have left. And we don't have to agree to both be good scientists. <laughs> All right, moving along to the rapid fire round of questions. Try to keep your answers to oh one gosh. word or maybe yep. two if necessary. Okay. Who's your celebrity crush or crushes? Olivia Wilde. <laughs> Gotta look up who that is. <laughs> you don't have to do it now. Ooh, or Idris Elba. Oh, okay. Nice. These are good choices. Favorite brand of soap? Wait, Janelle Monet. Is it too late? Okay, uh, Dove. Very good. <laughs> Where are you most excited to travel this summer? Mm-hmm. I'm going to Sicily. I'm very excited for that. Nice. What will you miss most about Astro Soundbites? Mm. <laughs> Getting to learn about astronomy, but having there not be any pressure to do it in any kind of serious way. I knew it wouldn't be us that you missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what will you miss least about Astro Soundbites? Don't say Kirsten. Will. <laughs> no, the, the, the dust facts. I could do without <laughs> dust for the rest of my career. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say cutting episodes. Ooh, wait, wait, wait. I'll go back. <laughs> cutting. <laughs> if Will cuts this episode well, you'll never know that I didn't say cutting. I will definitely leave that in there. <laughs> if you could embroider one original saying, no copying, onto a pillow, what would it be? It's got to fit on the pillow. An original saying? Yes. Have fun with it. Do your best. This pillow is soft. Those are the top three I came up with. Okay. All right. Three answers. Very well. You have to have a, a triaxial pillow. <laughs> there are at least two sides. Anybody else have a rapid fire question? What's your favorite type of donut? Ooh. OG. Glazed. Really? Yeah. it's a good choice. What's your favorite topping on a bagel? Everything. And jalapenos. Ooh. And your favorite topping on a pizza. Ooh. Mushrooms. Ah. Oh. That's a controversial one. Mm. What's your favorite coffee shop in Illinois? That hits a sore <laughs> spot because I had a favorite coffee shop called Clever Moose or Logic Cafe, and it closed its doors in the final semester of me doing my PhD. Aww. So it is no more. But for many years, that was my go-to place. All right. Alex, I just want to say it's been a real pleasure building this podcast with you for the past four years. I love how well we work together, how we've shared in the vision of Astra Soundbites, and how we've gotten to see it grow so much. But most of all, I'm really glad to consider you among my closest friends. Congratulations on your PhD. And I really look forward to seeing you in Boston soon. Oh, thanks, Will. Any final words for us, Alex? I, I wanted to say that I had the idea of Astro Soundbites because as a first-year grad student, I was commuting to the office a lot and wanting to learn more about the latest astronomy research with my spare time. But I could never have expected it to have blossomed into this great thing that it is today that means a lot to me. I think that's a testament to the work that Malena 
Sabrina, Will, Kirsten, you all have put into this, what is completely a volunteer effort. And I just can't thank you all enough for believing in that vision. I have loved learning and growing with each of you. And it's, it's been a pleasure, genuinely. It's been really fun. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the show and for coming along on the journey with us. And with that, we conclude episode 74 of Astro Soundbites. Super co-host, Super Alex, Supernova. If you'd like to read Alex's three fabulous papers, check out the links in the show notes. Just because Alex is leaving Astro Soundbites doesn't mean he's really gone because his voice lives on in the nearly four years of episodes that he co-hosted. And in the large language model that will soon be unveiled. (laughs) Soon to be deployed. So go and listen back to all of our 74 Alex-filled episodes. Find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Alex, why don't you say it one last time? Thanks for listening for the past four years, and never forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>